0: Hey, this is kate welcome to two pastors take a walk and make a podcast
1: this is yolando and as always we're talking about what is astonishing us what we're thinking about and what we are preaching i almost forgot for a second it's like wait what's that first thing
0: everything is strange we're on zoom again this again week because, because there is not a drop of precipitation zero in our world None. but we are Um, our our kids are all home from school on a snow day on a might've could've should've would've thought it was gonna snow snow day which I um, as you just reminded me about cracked Mm -hmm. under the responsibility pressure of calling or not calling worship last Sunday and so I am trying to cultivate a great deal of grace for the school superintendent who has to make the call about Um, keeping all these kids and staff safe um, without being able to
1: know the future. So
0: anyway, we're home
1: and so are our kids. but, But I'm a little upset because these schools send elementary kids home on a snow day with a packet of work. I mean, come on, let the kids play. On a, on a no snow day, yes. So, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a lot, but
0: anyway, what is astonishing you? What week? is
1: astonishing me? Well, what's astonishing me is also what I'm thinking about, and so many people are talking about this story. I mean, even my mother sent me a text last week with a video concerning Pastor Mike Todd of Transformation Church, Transformation Church is a large church in Tulsa. Uh, they started with 300 people um, in, a, I think, an old grocery store or something like that. They now worship with about 5,000 people when they're um, meeting in person. I think they have about 20,000 people that worship with them online. Uh, it's 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 a good-sized ministry. Well, over the weekend, Pastor Todd was preaching the story of Jesus Um healing the blind man by using his saliva. And I've preached that text before, I know it well. Well, I won't say I know it well, just in case there's a biblical scholar who's like, okay, let's see how well you know it. But I've preached the text before, I've studied the text before. And um, his point that he was making in the clip that has everyone's attention was that when God is ready to show you something when God is ready to open your eyes to the vision of what God is doing in your life and around you, that sometimes it's, it's messy. I think he said, you know, it can be nasty. And so um, as a physical illustration, he called uh, someone on stage, uh, I believe his brother, his actual blood brother, And as he continued to talk about the text and talk about vision, he, um, he put some of his own spit in his hand and not, I mean, he like gurgled. I mean, he really pulled it up from his ankles. I mean, I mean, it came up from, you know, we don't um,
0: need to describe it. If anybody wants to know,
1: you can Google it. it. It was, it was gross and not once, not twice. I counted three times so he continues to talk and then you know puts a little spit in his hand and continues to talk and more and then he says you know you know vision can be messy and gross and and so then he takes his hand and he starts to you know stir it up and he puts it on his brother's face and it's it's visible and you hear the congregation respond I mean they they everyone is pretty grossed out. They're shocked and grossed out. And so uh, since this sermon, there's been all kinds of conversation and commentary about this sermon. And so what's astonishing me is, like everyone else, my initial reaction was, this is really gross and really unnecessary. And I've come to a place where I have both compassion and criticism for him. It took me a while to get there, but my, my astonishment is how God helped me to see some things uh, in me and my preaching. Like I'm him, I'm, I, I am him because I know what it's like to have the enemy of your soul whisper in your ear and tell you things like what you're about to say everyone has heard before it's not going to make any difference and you've got to do something spectacular you've got to do something extraordinary in order to be heard you you can't rely on the simplicity of the word you have to do something and I know what it's like to be tempted to operate in your, your personality, your charisma, your own energy and strength, more than relying on the truth and power of the word. I, I know what that temptation is like. I know what it's like to in your mind and heart and mind, you, you want to make the scripture clear. And so you, you just swing for the fences and you, you miss. And listen, my platform is small So when I swing and miss, don't nobody care, (laughs) right? No, the people in the room go, whoa, nice try preacher. Um, But if you have a larger platform and you swing and miss, a lot of people are going to take note. So I have great compassion for him because I I just know what it's like to have this, this pressure that you want to, I mean, he said in his apology, he just wanted to make the scripture come alive. Like, I get that. And I understand that pressure. And so there's compassion. Now, I have a lot of criticism uh, that I want to unpack as well. But I, I want to begin by just stating my own uh, repentance. Uh, because my, my first reaction was criticism. Like, how dare he? That's gross. Didn't he know? Didn't he get that one? What was he thinking? And I sat with it for a couple of days and God, the Holy Spirit said, Hey, you do this. You, you are not, maybe not in the same way. And listen, I've done physical illustrations uh, early in ministry. I used to do them all the time. Bring people bring someone up, and you know, I would promise them, listen, I'll never embarrass you. If there is a butt of a joke, it will be me. So just no worries. So I get the idea of doing a physical illustration. I also just have a heart for, you know, pastors under the pressure to speak to a generation and to a culture, to a nation that often isn't that interested in what the church has to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I heard about this and part of my um thinking through it and reaction is i have a very good friend um someone who i admire a lot in ministry uh, adrian threet and her husband emmanuel threet who do a um a really beautiful ministry with um our neighbors experiencing homelessness in um in charlotte it's called hope vibes it's great and and mike todd is a pastor whose ministry has been really life-giving to them. And so I actually didn't even make the connection. I actually was just talking to my friend and was like, oh, what do you think about this? And, and she was, I mean, she had actually sent me his book. Like I, and so I had sort of my, my immediate processing was tempered by the fact that, oh, I know someone who has been deeply blessed and has respect for this man and his ministry, which, I mean, you know, is still troubled by this incident, but it's just easy to take one incident and then just um, decide that this one moment is emblematic of the whole of who someone is or who someone's ministry is. And so it's just kind of um, interesting to have that check on my own, on my own ego. And I think that, you know, living in a Celebrity obsessed culture and a you know sort of consumer bigger is always better richer is always more valuable culture. It's easy for pastors like us to to feel really defensive about um, pastors whose ministries are so much more visible and larger and powerful than ours. And so you you really want to um, I mean just your ego wants to tell you that there's something wrong with those guys and that's why you don't, it's not relevant. There, you've got nothing to learn from them. They're not doing anything better than you. I mean, it's just, your, you know, it's an ego thing. So it was helpful for me to just get checked early on by saying, look, this person who I care deeply about and who I deeply admire has been really um, blessed and inspired by this man's ministry. And that needs to be part of the context in which, in which you analyze this whole, this whole scenario. And I guess my, you know, I have complicated feelings about it too. Um, I think, you know, the, one of the main problems of that moment and that illustration is that he, in the preaching moment as the pastor cast himself in the role of Jesus, which I just think is so, so problematic because the culture already wants to set up, especially, I mean, any pastor, but especially super well known invisible pastors as sort of demi gods, demi saviors. And I think that we have to be really intentional about um, articulating an alternative vision to, you know, the hierarchy that exists everywhere else in the world. So to say, it doesn't matter what my role in the church is. I'm not any different than anyone who is gathered into the body of Christ. And I think when we literally in the preaching moment, assume the role of Jesus, that that's unhelpful. And the other thing I think is, I mean, I get his point because I do think that as Christians, we often just expect every call of ministry to be delightful and pleasurable and comfortable for us. And so I, 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 think it's, I think it's fair to ask people to wrestle with how unexpected and uncomfortable God's call and God's ways can be to us. And, and at The Grove, we're getting ready to preach a whole worship series on being able to understand that that spiritual growth is uncomfortable and have that expectation. But I have a problem, even though I, I understand where it came from, but I have a problem with describing anything about Jesus and the Jesus way as nasty because I just think, you know, the words we use matter and so much of um, the way we treat one another or the way certain people are treated and, and I mean, it is nasty. And I think that, you know, the gospel is, is, is very much anti to that. It's all about, you know, dignifying and honoring and um, embodying and practicing people's essential worth. And so I just think like, I get what he's saying about discomfort, But I think to have people walk away from that preaching moment and sort of their takeaway is, oh yeah, you know, the way of Jesus is nasty. I just don't think that's, that's not a helpful handle. And I think it's likely to make people vulnerable to a lot of spiritual abuse. And I think that's my other big takeaway is, you know, I don't know how possible, spiritual abuse is a very real problem in all churches, but particularly in really large, powerful organizations. And it's just an open question to me. I don't know, but it's an open question for me, whether anybody in that organization could have said to a person in that position, no, actually, I don't want to do that. Like that feels humiliating. And I I don't like, I don't know whether that was where there, whether there was that level of freedom. And that's not to demonize Mike Todd. I mean, but to your point, because there's this pressure of, this is what we have to do to produce. And I mean, the word spectacle is is true. You know, like to make a spectacle, it has to be spectacular to grab people's attention. And I think that kind of entertainment celebrity culture is something that we need to rail against. And also that is literally what Jesus did in the story.
1: Yeah. Right? I mean- So So part of this is also taking us back or should take us back to- the question: What is the Bible? Because the, it isn't a collection of precious moments, stories, mm-hmm. and nice rules to live by to make you happy, wealthy, and whatever. There, there are those surprise stories, those um, those stories that you walk away from and you you scratch your head and as preachers, I, we just have to handle them with care. Like if, if mm-hmm. I hear, I, I think we're all guilty of at some level from pulpit to pew, to the larger society, just reducing the Bible. Like if I hear one more person say, oh, you know what Bible stands for? Basic instructions before leaving earth, right? That's sort of, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've heard that many times like we we want to reduce the word to something we can really, um, we can handle control and use instead of submitting to it and walking with it with a lot of questions. And um, yeah, letting those questions shape us and being people who are comfortable searching for answers
0: Yeah, I mean, because I think on the one hand, maybe it's just kind of a hermeneutical question of, well, how do you envision Jesus in that moment? Like, do you envision Jesus in that moment healing the blind man and like making that a spectacular moment, like making it wanting to be this moment where everyone is like, ew, gross, wait, look what happened. Or do you picture Jesus more like a mother, like tenderly holding a child whose face has become marked or soiled. And like, I mean, like as mothers, as parents, sometimes Mm -hmm. we do that when we don't have any other way to clean our children, we will like kiss them clean. Like we'll, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll wet our fingers and our mouths and gently wet. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it is for me in our sort of hyper masculine shock jock culture, mm. we kind of think, oh, I, I can respect a Jesus who makes somebody submit to be spit upon in order to be healed. Like that fits with kind of an American 21st century ethos of like, this guy is tough and don't take him for granted. But I don't think that that, that um, scenario fits to me with the larger picture of who Jesus is continually presents himself to be in scripture, which is gentle and lowly in heart and meek and, and, and humble. And so I just don't see this happening as a, I just don't see it in that way. But I, I, you know, what I have to say, because I've been sitting with this and wrestling with it too, you know, would that celebrity pastor scandals we're all this, right? Like, would that the worst thing we could say about a powerful and popular preacher is, wow, he really was overzealous in his attempt to portray the gospel. And he really, you know, he really misinterpreted that scripture. And I mean, and I, and I think part of it is the thing that people understandably are questioning, you know, what do churches look like and why do we need churches to be a certain thing that looks so different than what the, the way that the kingdom of God is described in, in scripture. And I think that's good, but I'm not like, it's not right to lump Mike Todd in with say um, what's his face, Mark Driscoll, or Mm, mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, but I, the bottom line is I just think that that's not, I don't think that's supposed to be our takeaway from that story. And I think that, you know, we talk, or we're gonna talk a lot when we talk about practicing spiritual discomfort is practicing healthy spiritual discomfort. And I would say like to have someone rub spit in your face, like I would never want to, I would never think in the body of Christ, we should feel comfortable being, Oh, God is calling me to be, to have my flesh publicly degraded in this way. Like that's just out of line with the character of Shalom of the kingdom. And so when I want people to think about the discomfort of following Jesus, like that image of somebody spitting in my face and in a way that makes everybody around gag, like that's not healthy, spiritual discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that we help people differentiate between some discomfort comes from the holy spirit and it's the holy spirit saying get out flee this is not for you you are not meant for this and some discomfort is you know woe is me i'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips and our people have to be mature enough to be able to discern when to lean into discomfort and when to discern that this discomfort is god leading us away and I, and i think that that in that particular moment that that's going to really confuse that for people because basically then if there are, you know, vulnerable people in community who are being asked by a leader to do something that's humiliates them or makes them uncomfortable, or they would think like, well, sometimes Jesus wants to do nasty things to me. Right. And that's not as, as opposed to, I want to, you know, I think I'm being led to do this Bible study on financial, um, you know, more greater financial generosity to the poor. Well, that's uncomfortable because it's going to challenge me Of I think I'm entitled to two vacations every year. That's uncomfortable to look, take scripture seriously. That's the kind of discomfort I want to lean into, not the kind of discomfort that says, even though everything in my body is crying out to me and saying, you know, this is painful, this is uncomfortable, this is degrading. I need to endure this because and we just all know that the gospel has been weaponized in that way towards vulnerable people. So. Yeah,
1: One of the things that's disturbing for me in the video is that at first, the congregation responds in a way that clearly communicates. And you don't see anyone. You only hear them. They respond in a way that clearly communicates, no, this isn't right. This is, mm-hmm. this is gross. And then they very quickly get on board. Like yeah. That yeah. was disturbing to me.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I mean, I think it's not, and again, like I'm not, I, 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 I'm not trying to throw Mike Todd under any kind of bus, but I think it's helpful when we are right now living in a time where we're really thinking about crowds Mm
1: -hmm. and the
0: culture of crowds Mm -hmm. and the culture of community to also say, you know, how does creating comfort with a moment like that. So what other kinds of moments are, are people going to be comfortable with? Like we want people in the body of Christ to be interrupters of violence and we want people in the body of Christ when they see someone being dehumanized whether that be in the you know in the court system in the school system at work we we want the people of God to be able to say no this person is created in the image of God and they are inherently worthy of dignity and honor and respect and I you know certainly his, his, his i i know for sure that he would never argue otherwise but i just i mean this is why preaching is preaching is a heavy burden because it 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 shapes people the the word and the way the word proclaimed shapes people and that's why we can't just it
1: and not we, only what is said but how, how it's said, it's said. which is why i
0: think it's so important to be always centering everything in the person and words of jesus right to be really thinking how did jesus walk around on this earth Mm -hmm. and i'm not going to take the role of jesus but i'm not going to say oh well jesus was patient and humble but but i i can walk around like a conqueror (laughs) right um
1: Yes. I think in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I think there are three stories about Jesus using his saliva to heal. And um, the controversy in the text is not about his saliva. Yeah. The controversy is here's one who has opened the eyes of the blind. Mm -hmm. Well, everybody knows that the only person that is supposed to be doing that is the promised messiah
0: right And And the controversy controversy. is around
1: is jesus is jesus the messiah that's that's the The point of controversy not the saliva
0: and then the secondary controversy is incarnation right like if Mm -hmm. we then enter the text from the presupposition that jesus is god then you're saying look at how intimate god in flesh is being like look at the lack of distance so look at how far um we've come from isaiah and the throne room of god having his mouth seared off with a live coal to god you know literally tenderly intimately you know putting part of his own flesh onto the flesh of another and that kind of intimacy is again the precursor for understanding, well, what does it mean when we say in communion, we are taking the very body of God? I mean, like, let's not pretend that humans don't share saliva. Like, let's not pretend that we think it's so disgusting for saliva to go from one human body to another human body. We don't. It is a sign of deep love and intimacy, or it's a sign of scorn and like dehumanizing. And so then we got to say like, well, how, which way do you think that Jesus was using his saliva in that moment? Because I'm going to say intimacy that leads to healing every time, not I'm going to humiliate you because I'm so much better than you. You pee on scum. I spit on you. Like that's just not, so I mean, I think fundamentally I'm a, I'm not mad at Mike Tide at all, but B, I think the problem is not what he did, but it's that what he did really um, to me shows for me, a very different understanding of who Jesus was and how he was functioning in that moment. So, but I'm with you. I know that sometimes I get carried away. And I know that, that like, every preacher, and if you say you don't want to do this, I just think you're lying. Like, every preacher wants to be up there in the pulpit and have everyone be like, oh, right. I mean,
1: that's right. Yes. <laughs> Andy I've Stanley heard, says, I've,
0: you've got to get over it.
1: I've never heard that before. Or I've never heard right. it that way before. Or you made it come alive from, right. we want that. We We, want that moment where everyone
0: there goes, like you want that moment. It feels good. And that's why Andy Stanley specifically warns preachers about saying, don't go into your sermon writing, trying to create those moments Mm -hmm. because people can come in and go, ooh, ah, and leave. And if they're unchanged, it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. what you want to go into the sermon writing of saying, what do people need to know? And how will knowing this transform them? And how would a community of people transformed in this way be the body of Christ in the world? So it's not, we don't want to walk, I mean, our egos do, but our when we're healthy, we want to walk into the preaching moment saying, this isn't about me. This is about the people of God and how the revelation of God will heal, will form will nourish and transform God's people. And that can happen without people even thinking I'm a good preacher. Mm. Because yeah. whatever, the word of God never comes back void. And obviously we're all sitting here and talking about talking about this. And so I think that's just a really good example of how, you know, God meets us even in our big flub the dub moments. So anyway.
1: So what's astonishing you?
0: Well, last week I was saying how hard it was just the burden of knowing, do we gather for worship? Do we not gather for worship? What does that look like with the snow? And so we decided, um, not until Sunday morning, but we decided it really was too treacherous to ask people to gather in a sanctuary, um, that even though that was my preference, again, the preferences of the preacher should not be dictating um, what is what 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 happens in community and so we decided to to live stream which meant the whole service had to be really really stripped down we were sort of we the worship leaders were on a zoom call and then we live streamed that to facebook and so um that meant there could just could be no music and i so once again i am just reminded of how just healing and life giving and some of my just deepest and most sustaining and personal moments of communion with god are singing in the sanctuary with my church family like just worship is so and i and i have come to do it this thing that i see other people doing like really naming those moments of song as as moments and the whole service is worship but those that particular moment is just a different way of losing yourself in the presence of god and really one thing that is so wonderful for me is as someone who's just a big monkey brain thinker i i love in those moments of worship that my my conscious mind takes a back seat because you are you are participating and following you know the words that are given to you and that's just really it, it's so powerful to me so i just love it i love it so much and I, I find it to be so life-giving. And so I really grieve it when it's not possible. And what I was astonished by last week um, when we were gathered for worship and and that part couldn't be a part of worship and, and really moving forward in, in the trust and in the knowledge that it's not really our feelings or even our experience that makes worship authentic. It is, you know, giving of our hearts to God in that moment and and coming with um you know that posture of openness towards God and ready to receive whatever the Holy Spirit has for you and and an awareness that nothing has to quote happen in order for this moment to be precious and valid and good, right? Like, and so anyway, what was wonderful and astonishing for me is even in the stripped down worship service that, you know, you no know, bulletin, no beautiful space, no music, like none of the, some of the most um, noticeable um, experiences of worship, that gathering simply with our words and our prayers and being together, even though we couldn't physically be together, just how pure and beautiful it was and how, you know, you got to experience the truth that, I mean, worship is about turning our hearts towards God and God meeting us in that moment. And, um, you know, I, I would not care to worship that way every week, but I felt like it was a really... It was a gift to have that moment of reminding that it's not what we bring that makes worship worship. It's who God is. And therefore, worship is always a possibility for us. It is always available to us. And it is always a gift and a grace. And I was just really astonished at um, how, how beautiful God is and how beautiful it was to gather and how even missing the parts of worship that often nourish me most deeply. um, You know, there was still just an, an ocean of, of grace and healing and love and, and goodness in that moment. So
1: Uh, it reminds me a little bit of our conversation last week about worship. uh, When I shared that, you know, we'd had a special experience in worship and we just, unpacked for a little while you know what what worship really is about it's not about us it's about God and who God is and um, I liked what you said just now about God meeting us in a space and you know I left that uh, conversation last week thinking okay what something's still eating at me I'm not quite sure what it is about worship there's something there's something um, that I am seeking after every Sunday it's like what what is eating at me? Cause it's not, it's not particular songs. It's not a style. It's not, um, not necessarily an emotion. It's not a ritual. It's like, what is it? What made the Sunday I was talking about special? Um, and then it hit me that, that there's a, there's a, at least for me, there's a, um, I think it's both cultural and, in some way, how I'm wired. There's something in me that, in the worship moment, wants to. That wants to have this kind of cathartic, healing mm-hmm. experience. It's like after so much trauma, so much heartache, so much pain, and and you you really touched on it when you said. Um, It's about, worship is about turning toward God and God meeting us in that space. So it really isn't about the way we worship other than a sincere turning to God. It's not about a style. It's not about an emotion. It's about a sense, for me, the sense that I can bring all of me, especially the deepest wounds and trauma into worship and be reminded of not just be reminded of but experience the greatness of god the healing of god and this sense of it it really will be okay like not, not yeah. in a, a you know kind of pollyannish kind of way but oh there really is a god on the throne and the ark of justice is a real thing new heavens and new earth are on the way and that's when i when i experience worship being special it's that 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 kind of bell has been rung for me and i know that's not the end all be all for everybody everyone doesn't need that yeah but what drives my sense of worship is yeah i i'm I I need, I need the greatness of God. I need intimacy. I need the sense of, yeah, the the stuff you've been through, the stuff that you see in front of you, there's healing and strength for that.
0: Um, Yeah. I think it's a really, there's, it brings up this really interesting tension that I think needs to be in every worship series, in every, whatever, in the practice of our faith and living with God and the way that we proclaim the gospel that on the one hand, it needs to be relevant, right? Like
1: absolutely, mm-hmm.
0: what you are going through in your life. I mean, there needs to be real healing, real help, real wisdom that leaves the moment with you, right? Mm-hmm. And also needs to connect you to this bigger transcendent story yes. that doesn't say, oh, you're a pitiful little peon. Nothing that happens right now matters someday X, Y, Z, but that says, you know, right now you see through a glass dimly, but there, a time is coming when you will be communing with God face to face and that you in your pain, in your trauma, in your brokenness, in your frailness, in your weakness, in your sin, you are part of this larger story. And so this larger story is relevant to your current reality, but also more transformatively your current reality is going to be incorporated into this larger story. And that really matters all the time, but especially when the place where you're stuck in your current reality is just um, death dealing, right? And I so I just think that tension, because it can't be so transcendent that people leave the space to try to go pay their bills and be like, I'm drowning and God doesn't care. Yes, But it also can't be, you know, here's three tips for a happy marriage and, you know, the rest of the world can go jump in a lake, right? And so, so main, like really celebrating that tension, I think is really important. That's good. Um, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: So what are you thinking about?
0: Well, shout out to our good friend, Ryan Rich, who, Mm -hmm. um, flagged something for me that I had seen, but I had not noticed um, very well. I had not looked very closely, which is (laughs) the story of my life. Um, But last week was the King holiday. And so there was obviously just a lot of of public discussion about the man and his legacy and um, just the current, a lot of discussion. Well, I think you were saying this, or maybe we were just talking about this, but not on the podcast, about how... Um, you know, in many ways, people have weaponized Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. King as a, as a figure and have sort of cherry-picked portions of his um, quotes and speeches, and then are now trying to say any uncomfortable discussions about race and injustice are divisive, and are a betrayal of the dream of Dr. King. And, you know, people talk. You know, I, I read a really great article talking about how uh, actually Mike Huckabee had been invited to be a speaker at a breakfast honoring Dr. King and looking at his legacy as a as a governor and as a political figure, and talking about this is just the re assassination of Dr. King. That essentially his Legacy is being murdered, and, and and I think that's a actually a really powerful and appropriate metaphor. Um, and also, people are pointing out, I think, really helpfully, <laughs> that um, when Dr. King was alive, he was not revered, and he was particularly not revered by mainline white Christians. And so, there's just a deep irony. In the way that a lot of folks are appropriating his name and his legacy to support an agenda that he specifically um, and and prophetically called out at great personal risk. I mean that you know much as we say about Jesus, like Jesus was not murdered because he was such a nice guy. Dr. King was certainly not murdered for saying hey, let's just let Black children and white children hold hands, and nobody is responsible for any injustice. And, you know, I think that if um, Black people can just learn to value education and work harder, then we'll catch up, right? Like, this is not what Dr. King was saying. He was telling the truth about the ways that injustice had been, um, and white supremacy had been baked into the institutions that um, control our society and calling that out. Um, and so there was a letter that was going around that was written to the president of Wheaton College. Did you see this? No. Um, and so it was the president of Wheaton College, and and people have a screenshot of this letter, and they're using it in support of their argument that like, hey, people are acting like everybody loved Dr. King. People hated him, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why. And so the letter said. Um And, and uh, maybe we can link it in the notes or something, but it's to Dr. Hudson T. Emmerding, president of Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Wheaton, which is a evangelical, um, historically white institution. And it says, mm-hmm. dear sir, Recently, this report came into my hands and I find it very difficult to believe it seems incredible that a Christian college could participate in honoring an outright theological liberal heretic whose quote nonviolent close quote demonstrations have resulted in the deaths of 17 people as a pastor. I am asked every year by parents and prospective students to express my sentiments of Wheaton College. In all fairness, I would like to know if this article accurately describes the fact. I honestly will be quite delighted if you can say no. So he's responding to an article that Wheaton College, um, about Wheaton College, not that Wheaton College had invited Dr. King to campus to speak. What he's responding to is after Dr. King was assassinated, Wheaton College held a service honoring his ministry and his legacy and mourning his death. And this pastor wrote to say, this can't be true, but essentially this guy was a heretic. And if that's so, I'm not sending any more nice Christian kids to Wheaton College. So I saw that and I thought it was remarkable Mm. in and of itself. And then our friend Ryan sent it to me again and pointed out, which I didn't notice was, do you know who wrote that letter?
1: Oh boy, this is gonna be good and juicy. Hold on. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm afraid to name some names since this is being recorded. So um I've got some names in mind. So let's let's see. who, Who is it?
0: Tim Lahaye. The left behind guy. <sighs> yeah, left which
1: behind.
0: Is, which yeah. is so interesting to me because yes. it makes perfect sense. It does. And what I've said all along that our eschatology. Our understanding of the end of the story of what saving the world looks like, which for a which for Tim Lahaye, God saving the world looks like beaming up God's favorites who deserve it and destroying everybody who's left. And salvation looks like blowing up the world because it's a piece of garbage and saving heaven for those who have who deserve it. Right. And and if you don't believe me, read the left behind books. And I have long said that our eschatology, our understanding of what the end and salvation is, form our ecclesiology, our way, our understanding of what the church is and how we live together. And so it makes sense to me that that theology of, most of the world is garbage. The only people who matter are gonna be saved by God, you know, period. If that's what you think, then you're not concerned about justice. You're not concerned about um, being part of restoring the shalom of creation. And, you know, and that, that connection, I just think is so clearly illustrated in this letter, which I, I thought was remarkable in and of itself, but learning that it was written by Tim LaHaye really opens things up. And now I'm distracted because something in this house is beeping like it's a bomb about, can you hear that? It's like-
1: Slightly, yes.
0: Sorry, I need to find that. You know, just talk amongst yourselves.
1: Okay, that is so funny.
0: <laughs> Sorry, that was- You got my, it? My kids watch as I as I talk about God blowing up the world, it's not salvation. And then you start hearing-
1: I was thinking, sound. boy, that's a really cool Something. sound effect. I don't Literally know how, you, about pull, to
0: explode. So anyway. how did you
1: pull that off. Okay, yeah. all right. No,
0: no, just anyway. So, yeah. so that's well, what one I'm thinking.
1: About. One of the things I've been aware of is that you have a group of- quote-unquote prophets in the church today, and they are prophesying gloom and doom for America. And it bothers me for a number of reasons. And then it came to me the other day, one reason they are so confident in their prophecies is also because they're also part of a group of people who do things like storm the Capitol. So they're prophesying the very things they're planning to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, I'm not surprised that um, this would be Tim LaHaye. Um,
0: But it's just helpful to see it right out there, right? It's helpful to see that, okay, the person writing these books is a person who opposed the end of segregation and who opposed nonviolent resistance to Mm -hmm. injustice, right? So that's a, you know, as you're factoring in, is this a person who I want to accept their biblical interpretation? Factor that in.
1: Yes, Um, and our theology matters, and mm -hmm. we, in the church, we tend to think it matters simply in terms of whether you go to heaven or not, and we need to think in terms of your theology matters because it shapes how you live. It shapes Mm -hmm. how you see the world. It shapes how you respond to everything you encounter in the world and so it it definitely matters
0: and so you know that that speech that king gave i think the night before he died that the mountaintop speech that Mm -hmm. people talk about a lot and and not to take anything away from king as a prophet and as a preacher and an orator but when i you know we were watching some documentaries and listening to um historians talk about that speech and they talk about it as if he made up the metaphor of I've been to the mountaintop and I've looked over. Instead of understanding that literally, if you are understanding King as a Moses-like figure, then what he's saying is Moses, in fact, did not lead the people into the promised land. Moses, in fact, was called by God up to the mountaintop to look over into the promised land and was released from his ministry knowing that his purpose would be accomplished by God. And, And the idea of saying, I've been to the mountaintop i.e. I understand the revelation of revelation, right? Like I have seen the end of the story. And that means when it's time for me to make a moral choice of which side am I going to stand on, I'm going to stand on the side of righteousness, not because it looks safe or profitable, but because I've seen the end of the story. And so even though in the natural, there's no way that this side is going to win, I've been to the mountaintop. I'm not basing this on, oh, I'm such an awesome leader that I'm going to change the hearts and minds of all the people who are entrenched in systems of economic oppression, right? King didn't believe that about himself. King believed that God's revelation in scripture was true and that this is what God was doing. And he knew in all of his real humanity, where he wanted to stand. He didn't need to be a perfect human. He was able to take scripture seriously enough to say, there's no way that this kind of change is possible if it's left up to humans but I know that it isn't left up to humans. I know that actually the state of Louisiana doesn't belong to Bull Connor. It belongs Mm -hmm. to God. And I know what God is doing. So I know where to stand. And I think that's what we have to help people understand that. Like, look, there is no question about what's going to happen. There is no question about how God is going to redeem the world, which is why we know where where to stand? We we stand with the weak. We stand for righteousness. We stand for the dignity of all humanity. We stand against injustice. We we know that not because we're prescient or because we're powerful or we're such great leaders. It's because God has revealed to us what God is doing, and so we're betting on God, and we believe that God is more powerful even than all of the powers and principalities which seem so entrenched. And as such strongholds that we're living in right now.
1: Yeah. He was just very clear that the struggle is long and hard and also that the victory is sure. um, Mm -hmm. And if you
0: don't know that the victory is sure in God, then you will never be able to take a prophetic stance of weakness.
1: Or you will use the ways of the world to try to accomplish your ends, which is why Mm -hmm. he was there because of a sanitation worker strike. He was there in Memphis. Um, and I I grew up in the Memphis area and I've been to the the Lorraine motel and uh, the room he stayed in and you get to go out on the balcony and, um, and you see, um, you know, the pictures of, Uh, those who are with him pointing to where the shot was fired the direction and uh, it's a it's a very sobering place but yes you're right it is a reminder that speech is a reminder that um, wait this is all about scripture this is all about what God is doing I know it takes the form of uh, a social political movement but (laughs) Ultimately, this is pointing us toward new heaven and new earth and how God is going to redeem the world,
0: which is why honestly this is the problem with Mike Todd, not that his sermon was too uncomfortable, because it was too small. Like when we talk about the kind of discomfort that I want people to wrestle with is, is it, do you, are you willing to lay down your life in what looks like a lost cause? And are you willing to lead people towards a promised land, knowing that God will bring them there, but that you temporally will not. That's the kind of discomfort that God is calling you to wrestle with. It's a, it's a self-sacrificial discomfort, not a, self debasement is that are you willing yes. to understand that you are worth based on the revelation of god even if the entire world is blind to it that's the we are called to discomfort but it is so much deeper than whether we're willing to let somebody spit on us it's it's really yes. are we willing to have our eyes opened by the lord to say that a good life often will not be celebrated in this World that is in the process of rebirth.
1: Yeah, that segues into what I'm thinking about, which is, you know, we preachers have to be more than motivational speakers,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's as if we've forgotten the plot line of Scripture. We're mm-hmm. we're so focused on helping people be, you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise that we forget the the, the grand narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and what God is. Doing what God has done, what God will do to bring about new heavens and new earth. And if you lose the plot line, then you just go in all kinds of funny and wrong directions. And it, it's a reminder to me as a preacher that what you win people with is what you have to try to keep them with. Yeah. So if you win them with motivational speaking and um, whatever the production then that's what you got to keep doing and if you win them with a a vision of violence and you know you've got to be the 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 strong man if you win them with that kind of jesus then you have to continue that but if you win them with the the biblical narrative of the god who created everything and created it good because of sin it was distorted and twisted that God became a human being in Jesus Christ to redeem the world. And this is going to end in all sin, violence, injustice, hunger, pain, death, being gone. Separation, yeah. Yes.
0: And I I mean, I think that's the idea is ultimately is your vision of salvation. I'm going to have enough stuff (laughs) to survive even when my neighbors get blown up. If that's your love, which in a lot of parts of the evangelical church, literally, I'm preaching and then I'm selling people. And I'm
1: selling. I'm selling. Well, that- yes, that I, I see all the time on YouTube. Um, it's called the Patriot something, but they're yeah. selling uh, like freeze dried food or something like that. It's like yeah, you so got to prepare. I-
0: if my vision of salvation is some people only are going to be saved and I'm going to be one of them Mm -hmm. and my neighbors are going to be blown up and they're going to come knocking on my door and I'm going to say, you should have prepared, you get in what you deserve. Or is your vision of salvation that God's will is so beautiful and so strong that I trust it enough that I can surrender my own life to God? knowing that God will deliver me not just from sin but from death and from that my weakness will be made perfect in his strength right it just matters what salvation looks like to you Mm -hmm. and I think you know that Christians I, I think a lot of people who love Jesus they don't they hear what a lot of really popular evangelical left behind preachers are saying and and their own hearts tell them that 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 doesn't seem like jesus they don't want it to be true but it's so in line with the reality we know in the world that we go like well i guess i mean you're the experts and what we need is for people to say like no don't trust the spirit that is in you saying like that's not good news that's not good news and here's what the good news is and this is why you know when there's a police shooting in your town You know that you are going to go out and you're going to carry a candle and you're going to sing songs of love and peace and redemption. And you're going to clearly name that this was a tragedy and your brother, your neighbor, your sister's blood is crying out from the ground. But you're also not going to scream at every police officer around that they're pigs and that they're, you know, that it's that it's living in that tension of salvation does not require me to choose. Winners and losers, because God has so loved the world that He's entered into the world to live intimately with us and to become the loser of this violent game in order to transform it. And so I can stand in solidarity with those who are being oppressed without seeking to turn the table and destroy the oppressor, because I know that my enemy isn't flesh and blood, but these powers and principalities that God has destroyed on the cross. And right now they only have power to the extent that I empower them.
1: Yeah, you just stepped into a, a novel idea that the good news of Jesus is, is good. actually good actually news good. for the mm-hmm. whole world, right? Mm-hmm. Not for a select few, but it is good news for the whole world. And, right. and the church doesn't come across as proclaiming good news for everybody.
0: Right. And it is just in line with like, you know, I think Jesus saying a little child shall lead them. And we, we don't really know what to do with that, especially those of us who have several years of graduate level theological education. But, you know, if you ask a four-year-old, a five-year-old, you know, what would be the best thing that God can do for the world? A five-year-old won't say destroy the bad people and protect the good people. The five-year-old will say, get rid of all killing. Don't let anybody be sick anymore. Let's let everybody be friends. Let's, I mean like a five-year-old knows what goodness is. And I think we, our vision of what's possible gets so formed by the world
1: mm-hmm. and
0: we need it to be able to be reformed in God. Like what would we believe about God if we truly believed that all things were possible with God? Do, do we really good. believe yeah. that God's vision of goodness is smaller than ours?
1: so okay so we got to preach this at some point give give me give me a text what what text would you use to preach what you just talked about because it's good I'm like yeah I personally need to emphasize this more in my preaching Well,
0: I mean it would be fun to preach a whole series on like eschatology on salvation text and like not only preach you know some of those scenes from revelation but also preach some of those scenes from Isaiah and from Jeremiah about Mm -hmm. you know removing hearts of stone and giving hearts of flesh and preach, you know, they shall neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain and preach, you know, um, preach many waters cannot drown love and nor, I mean, you know, like they're just to say like these, these passages are right here in scripture mm-hmm. and we have learned not to see them. And we've gravitated to texts that are more reflective of our reality. Um, and, and we need to, you know, train our eyes to, to see the revelation in in our midst.
1: That's good stuff. Mm
0: -hmm. Be good. That'd be a good Easter series. Um, we talked a long time. What are you, you're not preaching this week, are you?
1: I am not preaching, um, this week, but you know, there is the, um, um, (laughs) talk of more snow, I think tomorrow or tonight. And so I'm assuming that we will be in the sanctuary on Sunday and that our guest preacher will be able to um, be in the building and uh, that we will worship in person.
0: Um, We recorded worship videos of songs of our worship leaders on Wednesday. So, by Murphy's Law, that means that we will definitely be in the building on Sunday
1: morning. (laughs) So, you're welcome. Thank you.
0: Um, (laughs) <laughs> well this Sunday um we are preaching through our our mission every January and uh so last week our friend Cedric preached about inviting all and and really I just this really great sermon about the tension between evangelism and justice that the tension that we have created the tension that does not exist in the kingdom of God um so it was really lovely and um healing and vision casting, and the next part of our mission statement is to serve, and so I'm preaching about serving this week, and you and I have already talked about this a little bit, and helped me get some flesh on those bones, but I'm going to preach about um, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, and really how our model of serving needs to be that model, um, not a top-down Service provider, service receiver, demigod model, but a kneeling down, a, a model that honors the inherent dignity and worthiness of the one that we are serving, the one that knows that to serve um, is an honor and um, and not a right, um, and uh, you know this model of mutuality and humility and deep deep love and friendship. So um, just really trying to. Help people not just commit to serving but to also not assume that they know what serving in the name of Jesus looks like well, that's and good. to approach that through that story as a lens so mm-hmm. so yeah so and now i have a 5 year old sitting in my lap and um to the extent that anyone has not heard her yet
1: she's very quiet she's been she's been great she's been very quiet yeah.
0: Um, Well, thank you all for listening to us this week because we really enjoy making this podcast. If you want to find out about more about what God is doing with the saints at Dorida, you should go to their website, which is almost about to be reborn and relaunched (laughs) that Yolanda has been working on it all week because he does all of the things, but it is D-E-R-I-T-A-P-R-E-S-DoritaPrez.org. You can also search for the Dorita Church podcast on Podbean and listen to Yolanda's back catalog of messages and you can worship with them in person at 1030 or on their YouTube channel. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can listen to the Grove Church podcast and find um, older messages, particularly worth listening to Cedric's message from last week. And you can also um, watch our Join Us for Worship at 10 in the Sanctuary or on the Facebook live stream or check out old messages on YouTube if you want to see all of our pretty, pretty faces. So um, you thanks for say listening. anywhere. We we're everywhere, everywhere. Um, and we'll talk to you next week. Carrie, you want to say bye to everybody? Bye, bye. <laughs> you. <phone rings>